Turning again now this morning to Acts chapter 2, I anticipate that we will speed up significantly as we move past Acts chapter 2, but we are slowing down significantly um, here in Acts chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, listen to this good news that I would proclaim to you this morning, that the Jesus whom God attested in life by miracles and wonders and signs, who was delivered over to death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, the one whom God has raised up from the dead, that he is now the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. It is this Jesus who, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured out upon you, upon his people, the Holy Spirit. In order that you might receive all the blessings of his present rule and reign in the heavens at the right hand of God. That is a summary of Peter's Pentecost message. And so last week, we came to Peter's exhortation to the people as to how they should respond to that message that he had just preached. And Peter said to them, repent. After hearing that good news, but it's not just good news, it's simply true news. And it calls forth, it demands a response from the people. So he says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So this week we come to the results of Peter's preaching. We've seen the phenomena of Pentecost, the the wind, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues like fire and the speaking in unknown languages. We've listened to the message that Peter has preached. We've we've considered his exhortation to the people to repent. And now at the end of it, at the end of the chapter two, we come to the people's response. And so we read, so then those who had received Peter's word were baptized. And so I thought about that word receive. We're going to look at it at two different angles. What does it mean to receive Peter's word? I thought we could paraphrase it. Those who took Peter's word to heart and acted upon it. I mean, there's often times we can say something to someone, and if it's not taken to heart, right, we don't then act upon it. It it makes no difference in our lives. And so the people in this instance, they took Peter's word to heart and acted upon it. In the first place, they believed that Peter's message about Jesus the Messiah was true. That's a simple, simple, obvious statement, but we shouldn't take it for granted. This was, they believed this was not ultimately the word of Peter. Yes, Peter is the one preaching to them, but they believed that the word he preached to them was not ultimately his word, but the very word of God. 
So the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, and for this reason we also thank God without ceasing that when you were taught the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it. See, there's that word received it, which is not a common word in the Bible in this con- kind of a context. So it was interesting where it appears. He says you received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. So having believed that Peter's message is true, that it is the very word of God, and and I'll jump ahead here and say, you know, Peter says that all who teach, not all who teach the word ought to speak as though speaking the oracles of God. And so I would encourage you that as you sit and you hear the word preached to you this morning, you can receive it insofar as this is true. I mean, I am not infallible, and I know I, I only have, there's only authority to my message insofar as it's the word of God. But you can receive the preaching of the word here, not as my word, though I'm the one who's speaking it, but as the word of God. This is a beautiful reality that we encounter every time we come and gather on Sunday. They believed then Peter's message about Jesus the Messiah was was true. And then as a result they of taking it to heart, they acted upon it by repenting and turning and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So it was interesting. Two other places where you see the idea of receiving the word. James exhorts us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And then Paul recalls how the Thessalonians had received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. May that characterize all of us here this morning as we receive the word, that we receive it with meekness, with, with a true sense of, I need God to teach me and work in me as a sinner who is dependent upon him. May we receive the word, furthermore, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So here then is another way that, that this community can be described. We are those who have received the word that has been preached to us for what it really is, the word of God, with meekness and with joy. That's what we are. That's what this is because of God's grace in us, because he has called us to himself. Now, in light of what we've seen so far, we can say there's an active sense to this receiving, because it's something we do. So we do the receiving. But there's also a passive sense to this receiving. You know, so when, when we receive, you could say, well, I'm going to, I, maybe I put my hands out, but you're the one who puts the something in my hands. I simply receive it. It's, it doesn't say that we take it, right? We don't take, we don't reach out and grab. We simply have the open hands and are given something we receive. So there's a passive nature to this. We receive the word of God only insofar as that word has come to us. We didn't go out looking for it. We didn't go out to find it and grab it, as it were. 
God is the one who sent that word to us. So insofar as that word has Paul, and I'm quoting here from Paul, we're in this same context where he talks about receiving the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says that that word has come to us, not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance as to those who are the beloved and elect of God. So in your handout, we receive the word of God only insofar as God sends that word to us and effectually applies that word in us. Yes, I receive. There is something active there. But there's also something wholly passive there. I am the recipient of what God sends to me and does in me. I have received his work in me. We see the sovereignty of that divine activity now in the second half of this verse. Now, I'm setting this all up. This, I, hope there's a, I hope there's, well, there is value in what we've said by itself. But we're setting up things to come as well. So the second half of verse 41 says, So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Interesting, right? Well, that's cool. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of church growth, we think? was 3,000 added to living word in a day? No. So we think about church growth. Um, but this is not really a statement just about addition and numbers. There's way more in this verse than we might initially see. So in the first place, I ask you the question, who does the adding? Who does the adding? Now, in verse 47, Luke is going to say that the disciples were praising God and having favor with all the people. And then the very next words he says is, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So who's adding to their number? Jesus, the Lord. But he's, he's in a sense, he is specifically identifying the Lord as Jesus, not the Father, not God the Father. Peter has already proclaimed that it's Jesus that God made, both Lord and Christ. Certainly God is Lord, the Father is Lord, but throughout Acts, when he refers to the Lord, we ought to see him referring to Christ the King, the Messiah. And it is therefore this Jesus who, as the risen Lord and Christ, is adding these men and women. Remember, Acts is the Acts, ultimately, of the apostles through Jesus Christ, or Jesus acting through the apostles by his Spirit. And so, what is Jesus doing now? He's adding. Previously, we saw Jesus receiving the Spirit, sending the Spirit. Now, Jesus is doing a work of adding. The picture, then, is not that Jesus is reacting to what the people are doing. He's not observing. He's not, oh, look, people are repenting. That's good news. The people are being baptized. Now I will add them to my church. Well, I got ahead of myself there. Just add them, right? Instead, we can look at it this way. As the people were receiving the word that God sent to them and that God was effectually working in them, Jesus was at work adding them 
So we see this work going on. God sends the word. God effectually works the word in them. And as they are receiving the word that God sends to them and effectually works in them, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is adding them. The next question then is adding them to what? In Acts chapter 5, Luke says, And more than ever, believers in the Lord, there's the Lord again, So believers in Jesus as the Messiah, they were added. It's interesting. Peter uses this word added, I think, only these three times. They were added multitudes of men and women. Later in Acts 11, Luke says, and a considerable crowd was added to the Lord. Okay, they're all three up there. If we put those three passages together, what we get is this. Those believing in the Lord were being added by the Lord to the Lord. And who is the Lord? That's not just a a word we use to refer to Jesus or to God. The, the, The Lord is the King, the Messiah, the one whom God has exalted to his right hand and made Lord and Christ, Messiah. It's the risen Lord and Messiah himself who is adding those who are believing in him to himself through the spirit that he pours out. What we have here then is the fulfillment. What is going on here, I'm asking you. So what is happening here is the fulfillment of Jesus' word to Peter in Matthew 16. Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ. What is the Christ? The Messiah. The son of the living God, which doesn't mean here the eternal son of the living God. I don't know that Peter grasped that fully yet. When he says you are the son of the living God, he's thinking of Psalm 2 and how the kings were, were called uniquely the son of God. So Peter is confessing that Jesus is God's anointed king. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus responds by saying to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I, I, who, who am I? Who you just confessed me to be, the Messiah and King. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This church that Messiah will build. What is the church the Messiah builds? It is specifically his eschatological. When I use that word, we might think end times. The church is Messiah's end times, eschatological kingdom community. So often when we think of the church, Honestly, sometimes I think when we think of the church, relatively speaking, we think of something rather boring. Because we we necessarily think of something comparatively boring compared to what the Bible paints it as because we fail to think of the church in its redemptive historical context. Now, I'll ask you what I've asked my family recently is that when I say redemptive historical, am I still speaking a foreign language here? Or are we like, yeah, get it. I, I got that now. 
right? Redemptive historicals, the whole unfolding plan in history of God's accomplishing redemption, okay? So when I, when I say eschatological, eschatological is the culmination of that unfolding plan, okay? And so when we think of the church, we have to put the church in this redemptive historical unfolding plan. And where does the church go in this redemptive historical unfolding plan? Where does it go? It goes in that eschatological part. That's where the church fits. And when we fail to put the church in that redemptive historical eschatological location, uh, we won't grasp what we are a part of. We're going to see how important this was even for these Christians here in Acts chapter 2. We fail to give the church its full significance to our detriment and loss. So when Luke says this, now listen to this. So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized. And that day there were added about three thousand souls. His emphasis is not on a localized example of church growth, quote, church growth. Neither is it simply on the response of the people. Oh, look, the people are receiving, and that's what you all need to do too, is receive. That's true, and that's something that we've already talked about. But that's not his focus and emphasis. What Luke is emphasizing and what he is so rejoicing in in this verse is the redemptive historical fulfillment, the flowering, as it were, of all God's promises. If you wanted to picture it this way, you have the redemptive historical plan is like you plant the seed. And the seed was planted in Genesis 3 when God said to Eve, uh, your seed will crush the head of the serpent, right? So that was the planting of the seed, the first promise. And then as the plant grows and puts out leaves and, and grows to maturity, only then now on this day is the bud of the flower bursting open. This is what we have here, the flowering of all God's promises. The risen Lord and Christ has just added 3,000 souls to what? To what, brothers and sisters? To his messianic end times eschatological people. Here in the growth of this new kingdom people is nothing less than what one commentator calls, and I love this, the final drama of redemptive history prior to the consummation, Christ's second coming. Another commentator calls this the dawn of the new age. It's because of this, then, that that Luke tells us, if you look at verse 43, Luke tells us that fear, we could call that here an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder and even of trembling, a joyful trembling for many, but still a trembling, a fear, a wonder, because the people realize they're being confronted with the mighty working of God, that fear came upon every soul. The people were witnessing. The reason they were filled with fear, not a bad fear for everyone, 
but a, an awe was because they were witnessing the end. The telos, the culmination, the fulfillment of these redemptive promises and redemptive history. I hope that helps you because I know often when I would read Acts 2 and I would get to the point and everyone was filled with fear, I was like, what? What is that, what is that about? All of a sudden you're telling me all these people are filled with, with fear. Well, it's because they got it. It's because they got what so often we miss. There's one other way for us to see that Luke's focus here is redemptive historical. And Acts, Acts is a redemptive historical book. That's why I keep talking about this stuff. Okay? But let me, let me just give you another category to think in. There's a, there's a word, a phrase that's used, historia salutis. That's Latin for salutis is salvation, historia, history. History of salvation, redemptive historical. There's another phrase we use, ordo salutis. That's the order of salvation. And what we mean by that is the order in which salvation is applied in my heart. And what we end up focusing on a lot of times is the which is good, and we do this here, is the application of salvation to me subjectively, individually. That's good. But Luke's focus especially is not so much on the ordo salutis, how I have experienced it, but first of all, on the historia salutis, how it has been unfolding and the time in which we are living. Until you get the time in which you're living, you can't fully appreciate your experience subjectively of that salvation. The two things must go together. And so we see that Luke's focus is redemptive historical, um, not on an individual subjective response or on church growth in this way. Here on this day of Pentecost, who is it that received Peter's word? It was Jews. And they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. The next time Luke speaks of people receiving the word is Acts 8. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. When they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God, which was the Old Testament messianic kingdom, when they talk about the kingdom of God, they're talking about, the kingdom Isaiah told us about and Jeremiah told us about and Joel and Amos. It's the same kingdom. And when they believed that news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, the king, they were being baptized, both men and women. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had what? Received the word of God. Do do you see the passive quality of that word there? They heard they had received it because God sent it to them. Therefore, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So is that a second Pentecost? They received the, they received the Spirit, right? They received the Word of God. Is that Pentecost number two? And are we supposed to be still having Pentecost today? Over and over again? No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what this is. This is a sign that the original redemptive historical event, that it's not repeated, it happened and it's done, Pentecost. 
that that has application not just to the Jews, but to Samaritans. Even Samaritans have now received the word of God. It's come to them in history. So even they are being added. See, the added to this end times community of Jesus the Messiah. The next time we have this is in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these things to, now it's not a Samaritan or a Jew, now it's to the Gentile, Cornelius, those who were gathered in his house. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word, and they spoke in tongues, just like on Acts 2. Then Peter answered, Can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we did, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So I want to ask you again, was Pentecost not really so, so uniquely special at one moment? Do you just have a Pentecost and then another Pentecost and now a third Pentecost and then maybe how many other Pentecosts should there be? No, that's not what's happening. This is a sign that the original Pentecost, the true and only Pentecost that happened once for all, that that has application not just to Jews and not only to Samaritans, but also to Gentiles. This is the unfolding, this is the flowering of the plan. Even the Gentiles in your handout have now received the word of God. Because God sent that word to them and effectually worked it in them. And so even the Gentiles are being, what? Added to this end times community of Jesus the Messiah. I'm reminded then, and you might be too, of Peter's Jesus' word to the apostles in chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, there's the Jews. And Samaria, there's the Samaritans. And even to the end of the earth, there's the Gentiles. And we see that unpacked as the word is received by first the Jews, then received by the Samaritans, then received by the Gentiles. Listen again to these words. So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. I'm just going to invite you. Do you see now for yourself the full flowering that redemptive historical meaning packed into those words? It's by virtue of being added by who? By the risen Lord and Messiah to what? to his own eschatological end times people, that these are all now participants in the final drama of redemptive history. We are participants in the final drama, the messianic age of the Spirit. Okay, it's because the people understand that, even to the point that fear, a trembling awe, has come upon them all, that Luke can go on to tell us in verse 42. I've just been setting us all up for this. And they were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and to the prayers. We could, we could appropriately gloss with the word, and they were therefore continually devoting themselves. You see this powerful connection? There is a connection here. And this is why I emphasize this so much, because a large part of the reason, perhaps, for some of our apathy, for some of our failings as Christians and as a church, is because we fail to grasp what we've just seen about the time and history in which we live. We've failed to grasp and to see the church in its full redemptive historical context. But it was because these people had not failed to see what we so often fail to see. That there was this connection between, on the one hand, the salvation historical reality that they were experiencing, and on the other hand, the things to which they now continually devoted themselves. Right? They saw this, and they said, oh, then we must do this. Right? They saw that, and they said, well, I, I, I will throw myself into these things that are, that are what people like us do have experienced these realities. And so the first thing Luke mentions, the first thing we'll focus on this morning, is the teaching of the apostles. We first need to understand that the teaching of the apostles, what, what is this? Like, oh, you know, because how often, have, I mean, when we read this, do we get to this? And like, they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Oh, okay, I ought to do that. No, that's, that's not the picture here. They were continually devoting themselves. Why? Because they were filled with fear. A fear that has a whole bunch of joy associated with it. Because they got it. Teaching the apostles, first of all, what is it then? It's not a replacement for the Jewish or the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. I'm not going to call it the Old Testament here, because for them it wasn't the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. It was just the scriptures. The apostles' teaching was not a replacement for the law and the prophets. You know, it, it wasn't as if the people who used to be committed to Moses are now committed to the teaching of the apostles, though this was the accusation many people made. Look in Acts. Stephen's accusers said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. The elders of the Jerusalem church, when Paul came to Jerusalem, they told him, that the Jews who have believed and are zealous for the law, they have been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. By the way, none of that was true. Paul himself had Timothy circumcised. Paul, Paul did not tell Jews not to circumcise their children. He did tell Jews not to receive circumcision as a sign of, as a sign of law-keeping uh, for the sake of justification. But Paul had no problem with Jews circumcising their children still because that was what they had been doing all their lives, and there was nothing inherently wrong with that. He took Timothy and had him circumcised for the sake of the Jews who were living in those parts. There were other things Paul did at the temple. So Paul did not speak against the law. Instead. It was the teaching of the apostles that enabled the people to read the law. 
and the prophets are right. According to their true, full, the truest and fullest meaning. It was the teaching of the apostles in your handout that enabled the people to see Jesus in the law and the prophets. Insofar as he is the one in whom the law and the prophets are all filled up. So we've seen that already. I'm just going to take a quick tour through Acts. We've seen it in Peter's sermon. Where did Peter quote? He quoted from Joel 2. He quoted from Psalm 16, from Psalm 110, showing how those scriptures are all filled up in Jesus. In Acts 3, Peter is in the midst of quoting, he quotes from Deuteronomy 18. Then he quotes from Genesis chapter 22. And in the middle of that, he says, which that's the law of Moses, right? Genesis and Deuteronomy is the law. And then he says, likewise, all the prophets. So not just Moses, but all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also proclaimed these days. These days. Oh, oh, this is what so, 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 un- when, we, when we see the church as, a, as an interruption in God's plan. When we see the church as a plan B or as a parenthesis, the church, God had all these promises, and then there's the church, and then God's going to do this. No, no. The church, the apostles saw it all happening now. This was what filled them with awe. And this is the awe that we need to recapture. This is what we see throughout Acts. So in Acts 4, the apostles will see Psalms 2. Psalms 118 filled up in the opposition of the Jews and Gentiles to Jesus and their continued opposition to his followers and his kingdom. In Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 13, Stephen first and then Paul will see the history of Israel as it is recorded in Scripture. The whole history of Israel fulfilled in Jesus and his kingdom now. In Acts 15, James quotes the prophet Amos as representative of all the prophets who spoke about Jesus and the people whom Christ would call, not just from the Gentiles, but from the Gentiles, not from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. We'll see that when we come to Acts 15. James quotes from Amos, who is saying, one day Jesus will sit on the throne of David and reign. And James says, It's happened. Jesus is sitting on the throne of David and reigning. The kingdom is here, the promised kingdom. That's why they were filled with awe. When Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch on the desert road, Luke tells us that Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, from the scripture about the suffering servant in Isaiah, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Where did they see Jesus in the Old Testament? Everywhere. Where did they see the kingdom in the Old Testament? everywhere. Luke tells us in chapter 17, according to Paul's custom, he went to the Jews at the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Later in Acts, the apostle Paul will say to King Agrippa, Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand here bearing witness both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. This is it. 
that the Christ was to suffer, that as the first of the resurrection from the dead, he was going to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then when Paul, at the very end of Acts, arrives a prisoner in Rome, Luke tells us, when they, the Jews, had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, which was what the prophets all prophesied. It's here, he says, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Okay, that should make one thing clear to us. Here's my question. What is the teaching of the apostles? What is their teaching? Well, in the first place, it is the proclamation of the crucified, the risen, and the ascended Jesus from the scriptures. When I say the scriptures, what do I mean? Matthew, uh, Genesis to Malachi. That's all I'm talking about. From the law of Moses and the prophets. Just like Jesus did with the apostles, so now what are the apostles doing? They're interpreting to the people the things concerning Jesus in all the scriptures. When I say all the scriptures, I exclude Matthew to Revelation. It's not the scriptures we're talking about. Genesis to Malachi. But the teaching of the apostles was more than just the Old Testament scriptures now read in the light of Jesus. See, the apostles, their teaching was not just, let us show you Jesus in the Old Testament. Their teaching was more than that. Insofar as Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, insofar as he is the Messiah who has inaugurated the end times, the eschatological kingdom. Therefore, Jesus is himself the new and final lawgiver. A new kind of law, the law of liberty. He is the one greater than Moses. So what does that tell you? We need something new. There's the old. There's the new. The new is in the old. But the old is not enough to help us see all the new. So therefore it is Jesus himself who must now declare to all those whom he has added to his end times messianic community. This community has never existed before. It was promised, but it never existed. And so now the king himself must declare to us all that life in this community means. He must do this. Moses and the prophets couldn't do that. Why couldn't they do that? Because they were inferior? Because they weren't? No, because where they were in redemptive history. Well, I guess they are inferior. That's in a sense. But because of their place in redemptive history, they couldn't do that. They were never intended to do that. And so we remember Jesus' words to the apostles after his resurrection. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Oh, those are words that we cannot overestimate and that all too often we severely underestimate. 
That's, those are kingdom words. Go, therefore, because I'm the king, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Remember, what did they devote themselves to in Acts? The teaching of the apostles. And now what does Jesus tell the apostles to teach? Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. The apostles then were those sent out directly by Jesus the Messiah, the King, while he was still on this earth to teach his words. His words. The words he himself spoke to them while he was with them as his authorized representatives. So we remember for our time through John, Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, These things I have spoken to you. This is what our king said to his apostles. I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, the apostles, all things. Not not us, the apostles. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Here's the new lawgiver, the eschatological lawgiver. John 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also. And why will you bear witness? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Remember, what did they devote themselves to? The teaching of the apostles. There are two partial exceptions which prove this apostolic rule. We saw one in Acts chapter 1. Remember, they, they needed another apostle to replace Judas. And it was not Jesus while he was here on earth. It was the risen, ascended Jesus who chose this apostle, this apostle, to take the place and ministry of which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And what was the criteria for this one who filled that office? He was a man who had accompanied the other disciples all the time. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, went in and out among them, beginning with the baptism of John to the day he was taken out from why was it so important that, these, that this apostle had been with Jesus all that time? Because he was to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. Well, why do you have to have been with him all that time just to witness his resurrection? Well, because they weren't just witnessing his resurrection as a bare fact in history. They were witnessing the eschatological kingdom meaning and significance of his resurrection, what it means for the day in which we're living and life in this kingdom. That's why they had to have been with him all that time. What about Paul? Paul never walked with Jesus while he was on this earth. So how does Paul get by being an apostle, right? Well, because Jesus called him. But Paul himself says that he was the last of those to whom the risen Jesus appeared. He refers to himself as one untimely born So that tells you Paul saw himself as an anomaly. Something of an exception to the rule as an apostle. 
We can't explore this morning the abundant proof of his apostleship, but we recall his words to the Galatians. Listen to what he says. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Look at all that language there, kingdom language, messianic language. I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we hear Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord, the King, Jesus, that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 1 Corinthians 15, we see it again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Who were the apostles then? Now we could say, I know who the apostles were. But now I'm asking us to grasp it a little more deeply this morning. They were those sent directly by Jesus, our Lord, the Messiah, to teach and proclaim his words, his words that he spoke to them as his authorized representative. Not only then did the apostles interpret to the people the things concerning Jesus in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, law and prophets. But insofar as Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures, they also delivered to the people his own teaching as the new eschatological lawgiver. The apostles did both. From that fact alone, then, what does that tell you? Okay, the apostles came along. Jesus sent them. They interpreted to the people Jesus in all the scriptures, but they did more than that. They proclaimed to the people Jesus' own teaching as the new lawgiver. What does that tell you? Already you can see the necessity and the guarantee of our New Testament. The apostolic scriptures. They had to happen. The apostles could show how Moses and the prophets all wrote about Christ, but they could not proclaim from Moses and the prophets all of these new eschatological realities of light in Messiah's kingdom. That's, that's what we need to see. Who alone could reveal to us all of the eschatological realities of life in Messiah's kingdom? Only the Messiah himself. So the author of Hebrews says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose end times house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. In connection with that, listen to what Paul says. 
we are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets. These are not the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We could say then, put it like this, I'm going to quote from Jesus, that the apostles brought out of their treasure things both new and old. And in so doing, what we're saying is that the teaching of the apostles to which the church was devoted continually, that teaching ultimately encompasses both the New Testament which is the apostolic writings themselves, and, by extension, the Old Testament. Because now we read the Old Testament in the light of the New. It's in that light that we can read what Peter wrote some 30 years after Pentecost, after he preached this sermon. Concerning this salvation that we have now experienced, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ, look what he calls the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What are the glories that follow? The eschatological kingdom glories. Already now, not yet. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you. And these things which have now, redemptive historically now, been declared to you. Through whom? through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Who who proclaimed the gospel to them by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven? The apostles. The New Testament prophets. These are things into which angels long to look. The teaching of the apostles. Just that quote. The teaching of the apostles. What is it then? It is the teaching about Christ. Both as the one who fills up the old, and it's important that we see it in both perspectives. It's the teaching about Christ, both as the one who fills up the old, think the Old Testament law and prophets, and therefore as the one who is the source and fountainhead of the new, think of the New Testament gospels, acts, epistles, and revelation. So we come to the conclusion. What what does this mean? Since it is the risen Lord and Messiah himself. Who is it? It It is this Messiah who has added us. Who has added us to what? To nothing less than his eschatological end times community. Since we are now participants in this final drama of redemptive history and the messianic age of the Spirit, since that is the the moment in which we live, therefore we must be continually devoting 
ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. And until we grasp the moment in which we live, we cannot and will not fully in the fullest sense and way as as we could devote ourselves continually to the teaching of the apostles. Why? Why is this so connected? Because it's the apostles, obviously, who have delivered to you and to me all that Jesus said as our eschatological lawgiver. It's the apostles who have proclaimed to us all those new end times realities of life lived in Messiah's kingdom. Indeed, it's only because we have already received. What are we already as Christians? What does that tell you we've done? We have already received the word of the apostles because Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't write any books. Right? He wrote zero, none of the books of the Bible. So therefore, what have we done? We have received the word of the apostles. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God. And it's because of that we've been saved. Should we not then be devoting ourselves continually to that same word by which we were saved? Should this not then be one of the defining marks and characteristics of the end times community that we are? How can we be that and not be a people marked and defined by a continual devotion to the teaching of the apostles? Though we can no longer go to the, hear the apostles teach in person. And how many of us, how many of us would say, well, if we heard that Peter was preaching somewhere today, well, I'd be there. I'd be there to hear it, right? I'm sure you would be too. Well, we have the, we have the scriptures as the written deposit of their teaching. And God has appointed, Jesus himself has given to his church teachers to teach the apostles' teaching week after week after week. It's as we read the Old Testament in the full light of the New Testament teaching that we too can bring out of our treasure in a secondary way, but still bring out of our treasure things both new and old. When I say new, do I mean creative? Innovative? What do I mean by new? It's a redemptive historical noon. Can you see now what should be the nature and essence of all the church's preaching? My calling and the calling of all whom Jesus has given to the church as teachers is certainly not to be original not to be novel, but only to adhere steadfastly week in and week out 
to the apostles' teaching. What this means practically is teaching about Jesus both. Can you fill in the blanks now? You know what it is. I know there's no blanks, but you could fill in the whole sentence. Both as the one who fills up the old, the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote, and also as the one who is the source and fountainhead of the new, the one who has declared to us all that life in his end times messianic community means. Now, if that's my calling as a teacher and a preacher, your calling and our calling, because I'm one of you, we're all, we're all part of the Messiah's flock. Our calling together as those whom Jesus has added to this messianic community is to be devoting ourselves continually to the apostles' teaching, specifically by our earnest and faithful attendance upon these times. Going to church is so much more than just going to church. It's not, and it's not just about being here. I said faithful attendance upon these times. I didn't say faithfully attending these times. I said faithful attendance upon, and also included earnest attendance upon these times. Why? Because these times are all about the, the, the end times. These times are all about the fulfillment of all things. These times are all about King Jesus the Messiah who has come, died, raised, ascended, and is ruling now through his spirit poured out upon us. That's what these times are about. In light of who we've been made to be, in light of what this time has been appointed to be, what excuse can we have for not earnestly, faithfully attending upon these times? Now then, going back to the ordo salutis, going back to the subjective response, right? Receiving the word that is preached to us each and every week, every Sunday, not as the word of men, but as the very word of God, with meekness and with joy. May this then be our truly defining mark. You want to know what defines the church? What defines a community like this? It is that we are those who are devoting ourselves continually to the teaching of the apostles because we are those who are even now participants in the final drama of redemptive history. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for so many things that, we, that, that come to us through, through these truths. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that there is now the apostolic deposit in our New Testament. We thank you that they brought out of their treasure both things, both new and old, that they, that they proclaimed Christ in the Old Testament and that they proclaimed the word of Christ that he had spoken to them in the new. Lord, I pray for this church that we be in the apostolic succession 
in the truest sense of that word. Not as those who have a leader sitting in the chair of Peter, but as those who are devoted fully to the teaching of the apostles as it has come to us in the scriptures and as it is taught to us every Sunday. And Lord, I pray that that it would in fact be faithfully taught every Sunday. Help us to see Jesus both as the fulfillment of the old and as the source of the new. Let us hear his word. Let us receive it with meekness and joy. As the word, not of me or of any other man, but the word of God. Let that set us apart. Let that characterize us every week, even, Lord, by your grace until Christ returns. Father, if there should be anyone here yet who has not submitted themselves to the King and has not gained entrance into that kingdom through repentance and faith, who has not received the word with humility and meekness, pray that you would work that in them today. And for those who have, we confess to you how apathetic we can often be. How often we just fail to to have that sense of fear and awe that characterized the people in those first days because they got it, because they saw what was happening. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see that too, so that we might live faithfully, devoting ourselves continually to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Thank you now that we can come to the breaking of bread, which which Paul said he received from you and delivered to us. And so we, we observe this meal not as something commanded to us by the word of men, though it came to us through the words of men, but as that which is the very command of our King, Jesus Christ. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.